0: Hi, I'm James McGee, and you're listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm Fabio Molle, your host. This week, I speak to former Irish number one, James McGee. James talks to us about Bob Brett, epic Davis Cup matches, playing the slams, losing the love for tennis, to transition to his new career, and a lot more. Before we get started, a shout out to our podcast sponsors Slinger, and to get all the latest info on the Slinger bag and to see if they ship to your country, head over to slingerbag.com. I'd also like to say our popular mid-size functional tennis pointer is back in stock. We were having issues with stock lately but it's back in and we also have a new shipping partner helping us speed deliveries across europe and we're also testing fulfilling the pointer directly from within the states for a better shipping service if you have any questions about our tennis pointer drop by functional tennis on instagram or you can email me at ace at functionaltennis.com. okay let's start chatting to james Hi, James. Welcome to Functional Tennis Podcast.
0: Hi, Fabio. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation and uh, let's get started.
1: It's long overdue. As I was saying to you just before we started, that when we started this podcast, I think it was August 2019, I was like, you were on the short list of the first 10 people. <laughs> we we're going to get on the show. And it's just one thing after another got carried away. And so happy to have you on here and talk about what you're up to, a bit about your tennis and life after tennis. But before we start, two things. One is, do you know if we've ever played?
0: (laughs) Uh, I know we've practiced and we go back a long time, Fabio. We've known each other since the early 2000s when we were playing in Westwood Clontarf. And I know we practice against each other, but I don't know if we've actually competed against each other. Um, Can you recall anything?
1: I think I can recall. I'm like 90% sure. Your league match, You were playing for Castle Knock. I was playing for Glass Nevin. We're on court three. I think you were about 14 at the time. And that's where I leave it now. (laughs) That's all people need to know.
0: (laughs) Well, you've got a better memory than I do, so.
1: I'm 90% sure it was you, I remember. But yeah, no, there you go. So you have a winning record against (laughs) me. Brilliant. But no, that's the first thing. And secondly, you had a post yesterday on social media about Bob Brett, who unfortunately passed away. And Bob was such a respected tennis person, a respected person in the tennis community and more. I'm sure uh, I was aware of him from San Remo and a mutual friend, Tristan, we knew trained there, but maybe you can tell us a bit a bit about Bob and what he meant to you and what he meant to tennis from from your point of view.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because I really didn't know him that well. I only really got to spend seven days with him uh, in San Remo in Italy in 2009 And as I said in in that social media post, you know, it it came about through my friend Tristan Farrenmahan. At the time, I was 22 years old. I was roughly about 600 in the world. I'd been traveling for one or two years on the tour. I was really kind of struggling. I was struggling with with where I wanted to go with my game. I certainly didn't have the finances. Um, Obviously, in 2009, that's when we were kind of in the middle of the recession. Uh, It was very difficult to get sponsorship. And my friend Tristan got in touch with me and he said, he said, James, I've got a I've got an apartment in San Remo right next to Bob Brett's Academy. And, you know, you're w- more than welcome to stay there and train at his place, get a chance to meet Bob, hopefully get on court with Marion Cilic and kind of take it from there. And that was a, a very nice gesture of Tristan. I took him up on it. I flew out to, to San Remo. Actually, I do have a funny story about how I got there, because when you fly to San Remo or you go into San Remo, I flew into Nice and then on, on the train there. Um, I you stopped by Monte Carlo, and it just so happened that um, Rafa Nadal was playing Verdasco in the final. If anyone remembers, uh, in 2009, uh, Rafa Nadal was playing Verdasco in the final of Monte Carlo, and I managed to sneak in and watch the final. Uh, <laughs> that there, there's a really long story behind that, but it, it, you know that was uh, that was a fun experience. Anyway, I got back on the train, made my way to San Remo. And the following week, got a chance to be on court with Bob. And the thing that um that really stands out to me, first of all, is the fact that Bob didn't firstly didn't charge me to be there for the week. He knew I was a a struggling kind of Irish tennis player. Um, he kind of gave me a chance. He wanted to see what I was going to practice like, what my intensity was like, what my focus was like. And when he saw me give my best on the first day, he gave me another opportunity on the next day to be on court with Marine. And, you know, he was just a good human being. He was very tough on the court. I remember the the drills that we did were exhausting. They were the type of drills that they were just lung busting. The legs would get super heavy. And, you know, if you missed a shot, he really just he, he didn't really have any sympathy for you. He's like, all right, next one in feeding the ball in right away. Um I never really got to know him deeply or anything like that but obviously I could see I could see why he produced so many good tennis players he he obviously coached Boris Becker he coached Goran Ivanišević Chilich who won the US Open in 2014 and uh he was just a just a good person uh, very honest very straightforward and uh, definitely cared about his players so very um, I feel very grateful to to have met him that week in San Remo and and I'm I'm grateful for for what he's done for tennis and and you know may he rest in peace
1: yeah th- th- thanks for sharing that with that us that's a, it's a lovely story and it's great to hear about coaches who care so much for the players like I see a lot of interact and see a lot of coaches on social media and some of them are amazing. The way they've built a good team, like the, some of the academies are like families, which is amazing, and I love seeing that. So, uh, yeah, hopefully, I don't know San Remo can keep going there. I'm not sure who else would be in charge there, but hopefully they can mm-hmm. keep going there. Was there a guy Harrison Kaiser? Does it ring the name ring a bell to you at all?
0: Uh I think I've heard the name, but I can't put a put a, uh, a face to the uh, name. I can't recall who that is.
1: Because I roomed with him in Greece, randomly met him on the plane there, and he said he would have trained with Tristan in San Remo at, when Tristan was there, and they got into fights and all sorts. They, they were, <laughs> I think, he was a crazy, he was a, he was a nasty guy, he was a bit of a <laughs> crazy man, but good player, was a bit funny. crazy. And yeah, so that that was my that's my story. But you retired about two and a half years ago.
0: Yeah. um, So the last tennis match that I played, professional tennis match that I played was the US Open 2017. And it was funny because I definitely didn't think it was the last match uh, that I was ever going to play in my career. At the time, I I can't quite recall what ranking it was. I'm guessing somewhere around 200 or inside 200 in the world. Um, And at the time I'd been traveling pretty much, you know, I played all the slams in, in 2017. I played the Aussie, the French, Wimbledon and Going into the U.S. Open, um, I was actually really struggling with a lot of things. I was struggling with my body. I was struggling with my mind. I was struggling with my emotions. I was struggling with my finances. And I basically had a huge amount of stress going into the U.S. Open. And it was funny because I ended up retiring in my first round match. I think I was down 5-2 against Christian Harrison. And it was the best thing that could have happened to me at the time because I I really was having, having a tough time. And I sometimes believe that, you know, when you're really struggling within yourself, sometimes your body just gets injured. You know, if you're really, really stressed, your body can get injured. It's kind of like, you know, the, obviously the, the, the mind and the body are connected. And what happened was I hurt my back. I had a, an impinging or I had a bulging disc and it was impinging on a nerve. It was extremely painful. I flew back to Ireland with, you know, my mindset at the time was to rest for about six to eight weeks, get the back right, and then get back training so I'm ready for, for 2018. And basically, when I went home to Ireland and I started resting, I realized how how, how stressed I was and how burnt out I was. And so I, I uh, you know, eight weeks turned into turned into three months to four months. Uh, when 2018 rolled around in January February you know, my heart wasn't in it to actually come back on the tour. And it's funny because my heart was always there since day one with my tennis. And there was a shift there and there was a change of heart. And I realized that this isn't what I wanted to do. Throughout t- t- 2017, I-, I I felt like I was, start- was starting to kind of spin my wheels a little bit. And I wasn't really going anywhere. I, I felt like I kind of lost my sense of purpose with my tennis and with my life. And I was no longer happy. And it's something that I think it's a good conversation to have, because I think a lot of tennis players, particularly those that are outside the top 100, and maybe um, struggling to get by, you know, that it's a very stressful kind of existence. And for me, I'd, I'd been doing it for 10 years at the time, and it was no longer bringing joy, even though I was playing the qualifying Grand Slams, even though I was, you know, uh, I think I played a Master Series, uh, I played Toronto Master Series a couple of weeks before. And uh, I was just, it was, a, it was a little bit of a strange scenario where I was playing all these tournaments that I wanted to play my whole life. And I yeah. dreamed about, but I was actually really unhappy, and so I wanted to put my happiness as a priority, and and uh, and so when t- 2018 rolled around, that's what I focused on, and 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 my life uh, did a 180.
1: And energy levels, like, do you think your obviously your energy and motivation, a lot of it st- like stems from injuries, that just injury after injury, you get on the run, something happens again. Do, do you think that plays a big part in it?
0: Yeah, energy levels have a huge part to play, and and obviously the lifestyle itself. I mean, for me, I was based in Atlanta uh, for the last five years of my career. Uh, I didn't go home to Ireland that much over those last five years, so I was pretty. It it always felt, you know, like I was on the road. Although I did have a home in in Atlanta, a guy who I stayed with, Roger Kirschenbaum, who had a big influence on my life, and. You know, I I feel when you're up in the air a lot, when you're moving around, when you're in airports, when you're changing hotels and all that, you know, it does affect your energy levels. It does uh, affect your stress levels. And then, you know, put, you know, you can put on the competing on top of that and put it pushing your body to the limit, as well as the financial stress, because you certainly are not making that much money on the Challenger Tour, which I think everyone knows at this stage. And uh, just all those factors kind of combined along with, uh, you know, the loneliness and the lifestyle. I I certainly struggled with that when I was on the tour uh, the last few years, like certainly experienced a lot of loneliness, um, dealt with anxiety, dealt with depression, dealt with some some things that you don't really see on the surface, you know, on the surface, people just see tennis players who are, who are competing and running down every single ball, but there, there's a human underneath, you know, and and I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of challenges there for a lot of people. And you know, one thing that I'm—it's great to see. I think more and more people are talking about mental health in tennis, and 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 Noah Rubin's a good example with his behind the racket website, Instagram account, and stuff. And and it's great because you get to see what what the what the human is like. You know, not just the tennis player. And uh, and so yeah, that's that's what I have to say.
1: Too many times, kids probably see they see James McGee and They go, God, I want I want that life right where hmm. he is right now playing these tournaments and yeah, you're right. Deep down, they don't know exactly what's gone on to to get there. The stress and the, like, you're everything, aren't you? You're like your own tour manager, your fundraiser. Mm-hmm. You're, you're juggling a lot of hats throughout your whole career, which I'm sure will stand, stand to you right now. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, it it it, it does. And, and uh, you know, the other thing is being a tennis player becomes your whole life and you start to identify with this is who I am you know like if you win a tennis match or I should say if you lose a tennis match it's not like it doesn't feel like you've lost a tennis match it feels like you've lost a part of yourself you know and I think a lot of tennis players relate to that they they equate their self-worth with their wins and losses and uh, it's just not true you know and so I remember when I kind of went through that whole retirement process or transformation process in in 2018, I realized that, you know, I'm not a tennis player. It's just something that I do. And I think it's important to have those conversations with people because they can blow things out of proportion. And it also leads to a lot of poor performances. You know, people don't perform well when they feel like their life is on the line and they feel like, you know, they become result oriented and they're thinking, you know, if I lose this match, I'm, I'm worth nothing. And if I win this match, you know, I'm amazing. It, it, it's not how it works, you know. And so um
1: the mind games to play with yourself are incredible.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely insane. So um, but I enjoy it. And I studied psychology w- when I was in college. And I'm um, I now work for a foundation, a youth foundation out in Las Vegas called the Inspiring Children Foundation. And we're primarily a mental health organization. So we focus a lot on kids' mental and emotional health. But we also do academics. We also um, are partnered with a tennis academy here, the No Quit Tennis Academy. We do a lot of project-driven learning. We actually are big. You'd be a fan of this, Fabio. We're big on entrepreneurship. We teach kids entrepreneurship skills and how to build a business and uh, what's involved and that type of thing. And um, yeah, it's something I'm really, really passionate about. And and I think it all started with being on the tour and, and and realizing the importance of mental and emotional health because not everyone is taught how to deal with their emotions you know we go to school and we learn math and english and science and all these different subjects but we never we never learn how to deal with our emotions we never learn how to deal with our anger or our frustration or our sadness or our fear and I think that's what we do here in our in our foundation so I'm really passionate about it. And um, yeah,
1: I agree with you there. A lot of these things that we deal with are very reactive. And I've mentioned here in the podcast before where from more from a sports psychology point of view, let's say, where people only go seek to get help after something's happened. But Mm -hmm. it should be, you know, we, we should be looking at these areas and seeing, okay how can we be proactive and help us prepare for it so when it does happen it's look it's not as big deal you you, you, man, you manage it so much easier because you're prepared for it but the mm-hmm. question to you is before you retired were you I know you didn't plan to retire and but had you had a transition going on in your head were you thinking of life after tennis and this is not an area you wanted to go in
0: yeah, it's a great question. No no, I I wasn't I had no plans to work for this youth foundation in Vegas. There's a great story behind it which I'll 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 tell in a minute. But um no, what really led to me retiring was was how I was feeling within myself. You know, I remember in the summer of 2017, let me see, so I I'd, I'd lost second round qualities at Wimbledon. I I beat Ramirez Hidalgo in the first round. I lost second round to Andre Rublev. I think I lost three in the third. And actually Tristan and his girlfriend and, and Merlin van der Bram and, and some a couple of a couple of friends were there watching. I think there was a total of six or seven people watching the match in Wimbledon against Andre Rublev. And it was wow. it was a strange experience. You know, I was like, wow, you know, like I've worked my whole life to be playing playing tournaments like this. And I've got six or seven people watching me. And I played an incredible match. I played a really good match. I really enjoyed it. And it was funny because I was like, is this what it's all about? Like, is this, why am I out here? Like, wh- why am I actually d- doing this?
1: Is that going through your head as you're on quarters? is he's just looking back?
0: <laughs> um in uh, kind of a little bit. I, I mean, I think I think when you're on the court, you're just focusing on competing hard. You're focusing on giving your best and and enjoying the whole experience. But when you take a loss and you lose and you you know you realize you're so close to getting to the next round or qualifying in, it kind of hits you hard. And I remember going back to the hotel on my own in London um, that evening and just being super super low. You know, I didn't have a coach with me. Um, I was just feeling really low and I was questioning everything. I was like, is this the kind of lifestyle that I want to lead, uh, kind of live? Um, because right now it's not bringing me a whole lot of joy. And um, then I went on to the, back to the States. I played the, the hard court season leading into the US Open. And what was really the, the straw that broke the camel's back was I won a match against Christopher Runcat, who's a doubles player from Indonesia. I won a match seven, six and a third, having saved match points. And typically, you know, I think all of us, you know, we we save match points, we win a match, you know, we're pumped, you know, it's a huge win, it, it shows grit, it shows perseverance, it shows all those good qualities. And I I wasn't even happy. I'd won the match and I just kind of shook the guy's hand. I couldn't bring a smile to my face, and I realized, okay, something's not right here, you know, because that had never actually happened in my life. I had always enjoyed competing, I would always enjoyed being out there on the court, and for the first time, I really wasn't enjoying it. I think, funny enough, Luke Sorensen was at that match from the. Uh, he was coaching someone on the side, and uh, he. I could tell he could see it, and so you know, going into the U.S. Open, you know, I I really wasn't in a good headspace. Ended up getting injured, and and my my whole life kind of changed after after that. But yeah, no, I I didn't plan on retiring. It was it was one of those things that just life kind of threw me this this curveball, and and I just followed followed it, and and uh, I, I'm very happy. Like I I have no regrets. I'm very happy with the the path that I'm on, and and I don't look back and be like, you know, I'm not like, oh, I could still be out there. I could still be training. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I I gave it I gave it everything, Fabio. I enjoyed it. You know, I, I I competed hard. I have no regrets. I mean, it's very easy for me to, you know, uh, sleep at night. It's not like I'm thinking back to all the mistakes that I made and I didn't train hard enough. I mean, I can, I know that I gave my best. And I think, I think every tennis player feels that they could go further and they could have done more. And that's just life. You know, I mean, Federer could have won six mm-hmm. more slams by now. So could have Rafa. You know, could I have been. Top fifty in the world, yeah, I probably could have been, but it didn't happen. So you just you move on with these things and 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 you learn from it, and and that's life.
1: We all do the same, no matter you're a tennis player or I don't know, you're lifting weights at the gym or you're in business, and we could have sold more products years, you know, (laughs) had we done this right. Everybody's the same, and it's just obviously because you're a tennis player and the attention's on you. I think it's a bit different when you're a sports athlete and. You know it, it, you always could be better, always could be better, and people yeah. expect more from you, but at least look you the main thing is that you say you sleep well at nighttime, and you know that's that's priceless yes and so but look just looking back, what match for you, if somebody asks you, I'm sure you get asked all the time, what match sticks out the most in memory to you for good?
0: For good i you know there's lots that's that stick out um you know there's Davis Cup matches that stick out being part of a team, and um, obviously emotions during Davis Cup are so high um I remember one match in two thousand and twelve we were playing against Egypt, and it was a group two relegation match, and we were there all week um it was forty two degrees Celsius it was on the clay it was obviously very dry. It was a way. So we had the Egyptian crowd that were against us. And, um, you know, we had, uh, you know, a great group. Uh, I could name the whole team, you know, between Nyland, myself, Kluski, Sam, you know, uh, Daniel Glanty was there, a bunch of guys. I'm sorry if I'm forgetting anyone. And um, <laughs> I can't name everyone. Uh, Johnny McCormick was there, by the way. And he was a great support. And I remember uh, we came down to the final day. And it was two, so it was two all. Yeah, it was two all. And I was playing against a guy named Sharif Sabri. And uh, on the Sunday, I went two sets to one up. And we had to stop on the Sunday evening because they didn't have any uh, floodlights at the facility. And, you know, we just had to stop due to bad light. So we changed our flights, came back around the next day to play the final set or the final two sets of this last match and by this stage on the on the monday you know people were getting amped up they had a drum someone on the one of the egyptian supporters had a drum banging in the background you know the ball boys wouldn't give me the ball because they were supporting their players it was it was it was carnage and um i remember losing the fourth set on the monday morning and then we went into a fifth set and obviously there was a lot on the line on this fifth set we lose the set we're relegated into group 3 we win the set and we stay in group two. And it was huge nerves. I was I was really tight. And I remember um, I ended up going up 5-2 in the fifth set. I had a smash on top of the net at 40-15 to win the match. Hit the smash. The Irish team run out onto the court. But what they didn't see is that I missed the smash by by half an inch. And obviously there's marks on a, on a red clay court. And so the umpire points to the mark and he says the ball was out you know, 30, 40. Anyway, lose the game, 5-3. Lose the next game, get broken, (laughs) 5-4. He's serving at 5-4 in the fifth. And, you know, we've been around there all week. We weren't expecting to stay till Monday. Flights were changed and everything. And so um, I go up 40-15. It's it's 4-5, 15-40. I've got two match points to win it. He hits a drop shot. I run up. uh, It's onto my backhand slide. I rip a backhand cross court. I miss it by two inches. So it's 30-40. Obviously, the tension is high. There's so much on the line in this particular match. The Irish team on the side are going crazy. And, you know, we're all... Just you know, going nuts, and so it's thirty forty. We get in a long rally. He drop shots me again to the same uh, to the same side. I run up, I slide, I hit a backhand down the line, and I look up, and all I see is Sherif Sabri hitting this sliding, running forehand cross court, the type of forehand where you just know you're going to get past. And I'm seeing him slide, yeah. and uh, you know everything suddenly just goes into slow motion. He rips a forehand cross court, and just out of nowhere. I dive to my right and I'm holding the racket like literally the final. You know, the way you, when you're holding the grip of the racket, just you're, you're barely holding the racket. I'm holding the final edge of the racket, just the edge of the grip. I'm holding it basically with two fingers because I need to stretch my arm out that long. And I stretch my arm out, not thinking I'm going to make this volley at all. I end up shanking like on the edge of my, of my frame, hitting a drop volley winner to win the tie and uh and next thing you know i look up i see the ball bands twice and before you know it i'm getting p- piled on by the whole irish team and that was a just no, that but, was a moment of uh, like of just you know it was, it was it was it was so high there was so much passion there was so much joy in that moment and um you know that's something that definitely that definitely sticks out um in my in, in my career i also have a bunch of other matches but that's one that comes to mind right now the second
1: that's probably, that's one of the few that made the front pages of the Irish Times.
0: <laughs> I didn't know that.
1: <laughs> I th- I'm sure that one did. That one did. That was that was big news back then. But no, I, I've heard that story from different people, from yourself before. I think it's a great, great story. And it just showed, it was you in a nutshell, really, the determination to go deeper than you think you can go mentally and physically. And it it just showed a lot about your character, and that's what helped you get to where you got.
0: Yeah, and it was a team effort too. I mean, we all we all put in the put in the grind there. Um, but it was it was definitely a fun moment. I think all the whole team can can look back and and uh, smile at that moment.
1: Join over 10,000 people who have downloaded our free match and practice PDFs over at functionaltennis.com forward slash downloads. Our match and practice PDFs help you plan and evaluate your matches and practices. We have some other free downloads there for you too. So make sure you go over to functionaltennis.com forward slash downloads. I I think there was a good group of lads back then. Uh, I used to love coming into the center and training. There were so many like... And they were so good, which you know, I we see tennis Ireland there. That's a conversation for a different podcast episode, or made for a different podcast, not this podcast. But you know, it's it's it. it, it t- things have changed so much, and what you had back there with so many great players and a great bubble. It's just sad not to see that mm-hmm. anymore. Because I think he's all fed off each other some way. And,
0: you know, I hadn't spent a whole lot of time there. I think in 2009 I did. And I remember at one stage we had, I mean, we must have had about 10 or 12 Irish professional tennis players, which was just great for for Irish tennis, you know. So um, I've been out of the loop from Irish tennis for a while now because um, obviously living in in Las Vegas for almost three years now. And and then obviously the last five years of my career, I, I had spent stateside. Um, but as far as I'm aware, you know, uh, obviously Simon Carr is still out there. Um, so fair play to him for for being on the road. It's it's not an easy it's not an easy journey. Um, being being one of the few Irish players out there on the road flying the flag, so it's tough. And and uh, I think support and I think surrounding yourself with the right people is is key. So the fact that they don't have the, have the centre now is is obviously very tough for for players uh, coming through. But you know, where there's a will, there's a way, and and I think for players that don't have that, if there are any Irish tennis players listening that want to want to achieve something, you know, you can you can think outside the box, and you can you can reach out to people. You can obviously with the likes of yourself, Fabio, putting amazing videos up on Instagram on functional tennis. You 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 learn pretty quickly how the best players training what they're and what they're focused on, and so people you can still get better on your own. You can still get better um, without always being surrounded by the best players and coaches but ideally you, you you do want to surround yourself with the best.
1: Yeah you need to surround yourself by uh, the people who really have been where you have want to go to that makes it a bit easier because they can hopefully mm. show you the way we did have a uh, middle coop on the podcast and when he was talking about changing from singles to doubles he said he spent a lot of time on YouTube seeing what mm. the top doubles guys were doing and that's where he was picking up stuff but that, that was a good story
0: yeah, that's a very good point, And I'm a big believer in that. I remember growing up, um, we didn't have YouTube, right? We didn't have Instagram. We didn't have any of this stuff. No, and I remember didn't. getting up in early January to watch the final of the Australian Open. we get up at two or three in the morning and Agassi was playing Kofelnikov in the final of the 2000 Aussie Open. And I remember recording that match on VCR and watching it like a thousand times. Like I, I watched it so many times because you can learn so much from matches. You can learn so much about footwork and how they hit their shots and between point rituals and where they're serving and what their patterns are. And, you know, I think it's, if you want to make it to the top of the game, you have to study the game and you have to understand the game deeply. And uh, I agree wholeheartedly with, with Middlecoop there talking about, you know, improving his doubles and going on YouTube. You know, the, the answers are out there. You just got to look at it.
1: You've got to want to look for them.
0: Yeah, you've got to have the desire.
1: Desire, it comes down to desire. So tell me. So let's let's fast. Well, let's fast forward in this journey where uh, you've made the decision to you know to retire. You're letting your body and mind recuperate. Did it take long for? And you mentioned on this how it's not only physical exertion which tires you; mental exhaustion is a thing and can mm-hmm. be worse than physical mm-hmm. exhaustion. Did it take a long time for you to feel like 100% mentally? Look, I'm ready for the yes, next challenge.
0: 100%. It 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 took a lot out of me the tour, and I realized I only realized now that I've been out of that lifestyle for you know three years now that I was in chronic stress, but you don't realize it because it becomes so normalized, you know, and it becomes normal. To jump on a plane three times a week to push your body to the limit and then do it again the next week and to be, you know, doing all these different things. So, yeah, no, it, it, it took me a while to really kind of rela- get learn to relax. And, and the thing that really helped me at the time, this would have been in early 2018, is I started doing yoga. And uh yoga had a big influence on not only my body, obviously, because you're you're getting into poses and different stretches, but it, it it was huge on helping my mind relax. And and I'm I'm a big believer in yoga. I know Djokovic is, I know other players are, you see them doing it. And and I primarily do yoga now just for my mind, more so than my body. And I think it's a I think it's a great practice along with meditation. And so when I started doing that in in, in Atlanta in in, uh, in early 2018, I felt like that had, that had a big impact on my life. And it was during a yoga class, funnily enough in, in in 2018 that i I made the decision to reach out to this guy. His name is Ryan Wolfington, who runs the Inspiring Children Foundation in Las Vegas. And initially, I reached out to him because um, he's an amazing human. there's a really long story behind this, but he's helped a huge amount of people in his life. And I reached out to him uh, on Facebook just to have a conversation about life, because at the time I was really going through this whole transition process where my whole my career had changed i was you know I was no longer a tennis player, I was trying to figure out what I wanted, what was meaningful, what would give me a sense of purpose in my life um, yeah, after you know reaching out to him, I actually made the decision to to move to Las Vegas to be part of this uh, youth foundation so um, to answer your question, it did take me a, a while to. To relax and to kind of um, overcome all that stress, it, uh, and it was a combination of yoga. It was a combination of deep conversations and and just chilling out.
1: Just getting that mind to slow down. Yeah, yeah, but that, that's amazing. And so, tell me, so did you just pack up? Was it a quick decision? I'm going to go to Vegas and give this a shot.
0: Yeah, this is this is um, this is an interesting story because. You know, I went to college in North Carolina State back in 2006. And at the time, um, I was roommates with a guy named Frederick Prindecki, who was from Las Vegas. And, you know, when I think of someone that's from Las Vegas, I think of someone that's a full-time gambler. I think of someone that's, you know, just up to no good. You know, I didn't realize people actually lived there. I thought people would just go to Las Vegas to, to party and to gamble and to do that type of thing. And so when I met my roommate um, back in 2006, um, I remember one day um, he got a knock on the door. We were in the room and he opened up the door and there's a package there for them. There's this big, huge box in front of him. So he picks up the box, puts it on his bedside table and starts opening it up. He opens it up and the first book that he he takes out some items and the first thing he takes out is a book. It's on the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. And then he takes out another book and it's a sports psychology book. And then there's another book and it's, uh, you know, a book on philosophy or something like that. And at the very bottom of, of, the, of the box, there's a note and it says, dear Freddie, if you're willing to do the right thing in your life and follow what you know is right, work hard and have a great attitude, everything's going to work out for you. Ryan. And I said, I said, Freddie, who's that that sent you this box, uh, box of books? He says, oh, I said, is that your dad? He says, no, 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 that's my mentor, Ryan. And so I said, what's a mentor? I didn't even know what a mentor was. He's like, oh, he's this guy that basically took me under his wing uh, years ago when I was when I was a teenager. I was really struggling in my life as a young teenager. I was basically, you know, in a gang. I was selling guns. I was I was doing that type of thing. I was in a really, really dark place. And this guy, Ryan, took him under his wing and started teaching him about life and teaching him about doing the right thing in his life. And so long story short, Ryan helped this guy, Freddie, become the first person in his family to graduate high school, the first person in his family to graduate college. And now he's got a thriving business in Las Vegas, happily married, doing great for himself. But it really all started with one human being taking an interest in someone else and really wanted to help them. And so this guy, uh, Ryan Wolfington, ended up helping another person, Trent Alanik and another person, another person. And fast forward 18 years, um, hundred and forty kids have now got scholarships to some of the best universities in the u s all the all the Ivies, some of the best universities um but not only that he you know um ryan is big on on mindfulness and and emotional intelligence and that type of thing and so when it when it came down to to me deciding to come to vegas, I had known this story and i I had known the backstory about this youth foundation and I was very interested in it because um, you know, just the nature of it. I could see, it's just really cool to really cool stories. And so when I reached out to Ryan, I, I, he told me to fl- fly up to New York to meet him and some of the kids, cause they do this East coast leadership trip every year. And I met Ryan and I met the kids and I said, yes, this is what I want to do. This was around, um, August or September, 2018. And I, I met, I met these guys and, and, uh, it, it was really an easy decision. And, and to be honest, the last, uh, two and a half, three years have just been incredible. It's very enjoyable work. It's tough work. But, um, you know, we deal with kids who are, you know, who have attempted suicide. We've deal with kids who are going through severe anxiety or depression or dealing with abuse or even murder in the family or addiction, these type of things. And so it's very, very serious work. Um, but it's very, very enjoyable, um, work at the same time. And so, You know, that for me gave me a very strong sense of purpose. And then I was also able to tie it in with my tennis, you know. So we were affiliated with an academy here called the No Quit Tennis Academy run by Tim Blankiron, um, which is also supported by the Bryan Brothers and a bunch of other um, high profile people. And, you know, I'm just very lucky to be in this environment now. And and it was a really an easy decision, Fabio, for me to come over here um, because it's easy when you're surrounded by great people. You know, it's really as simple as that.
1: Yeah, it sounds like you're really passionate. I've seen from, obviously, I've talked to you since you've gone there and I've seen your posts online everything. I can see the passion there. But tell me, what's an average day look like for you then?
0: So average day, um, I coach in the mornings. I typically coach from eight till, uh, I typically coach eight to 12. And that's a combination of group coaching at the No Quit Tennis Academy. And it's also, pr- um, you know, some private lessons here and there. Sometimes I do more privates uh, later on in the day if I have the time. Um, then in the afternoon or after coaching, I get some lunch. Sometimes I go eight to one, and then in the afternoon, i i'm in the I'm in the foundation office, which is a five minute walk from the tennis courts, and I'm involved in loads of different things within the foundation. Obviously, it's primarily mentoring and being with different uh, kids within the foundation. They they generally age from around twelve to up to twenty. And, uh, you know, you just kind of walking them through what they're, you know, you're listening, I should say, you're doing a lot of listening, what they're going through in their life and trying to help them. And then when I'm not doing that, I'm helping with fundraising. I'm helping with sponsorships. I'm helping with marketing. You know, you're dealing with, we have different events. We're a highly event driven organization. Um, and if you follow us on Instagram, it's at inspiring children, you'll kind of get a sense of what we're doing. Um, we also are affiliated with, um, the singer songwriter Jewel who's a four-time Grammy nominated uh, singer, obviously the Brian bro- the Brothers, a bunch of other people. And it's 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 a very we've got so much kind of going on here that every day is different. You know, new people are coming in, new events are happening. Um, you know, there are people that we celebrate birthdays, you know, everything's kind of kind of happening here and it's um yeah, it's just an amazing amazing organization. It's the best thing I've ever seen.
1: It sounds like you're busy and enjoying it, which look is a is a good mix to have. Tell me, do you hit the strip at all?
0: Uh, I can see the strip from my house. <laughs> um, when I, yeah, I can see it. I can where I'm sitting at right now. I'm in our foundation office. I can see a couple of the hotels. I can see uh, the Encore Hotel and the Wynn Hotel from here. And uh, you know, I, I hit it every now and then just because. You know, you end up driving somewhere and you drive through the strip, but it's not. um, I was in Vegas a a good few times prior to actually living here. And I remember playing a couple of challengers in October 2015 and 2016. And I really did poorly in the challengers. I lost one and two first round to Jared Donaldson one year. And I lost one in three first round to Dennis Novikov another year. And when I had lost that match, the second time I lost, I remember taking a flight out of Vegas. And just as the plane was taking off and I was looking out over the city, I promised myself, I said, I will never return to this godforsaken city. That's literally what I said to myself in 2016. And then fast forward, you know, 2018, I'm living here. So no, it's it, it's actually a beautiful um city outside of the strip. Obviously, there's all that stuff that goes on there, but you know, there's beautiful rivers, there's beautiful lakes, hiking. It's obviously very sunny and, and uh I'm very happy uh living here.
1: Do you see Agassiz?
0: Yeah, I Agassi, see Agassiz works with um with so, with some of my friends. Actually, one of my closest friends, uh, Trent Alnick and his brother Clay. Um Agassi helps the UNLV men's tennis team. And so, uh, yeah, Agassi. is an amazing guy because um, he. Just the other day, my friend Clayton uh, was telling me about his experience. He was on court with Agassi and Steffi Graf, and so he was hitting with Steffi. He. This is at, <laughs> the, at, at a at a tennis center down the road, but he was he was hitting with Steffi, and then Agassi was behind him, behind him, telling him what to work on on his forehand. And it was funny because I I couldn't believe it. I was like, Andre Agassi's like helping you with. He's like, yeah, he's like. He's an incredible like guy. He's an incredible coach. He's extremely an- analytical, and so fast forward to Christmas Eve, and I'm over at my friend's house at, at Clay and Trent's house, and it's seven or eight o'clock. And next thing, Clay looks at his phone. He's like, "Oh, Agassi's calling me," and so he, he puts it. He he answers. He answers the call. Puts it on loudspeaker, and I'm listening to Agassi talk about Clay, t- talk to Clay about how he can improve his forehand and how he can improve his backhand. I'm like, this is on Christmas Eve, you know. And so it just it just speaks Brilliant. to what type of person he is, and and what he what what type of what type of man he is, and what he's focused on. And and um, you know, the Clayton's been telling me just you know his his knowledge is absolutely incredible. He remembers every single match he played, every single shot that he's hit. And he's extremely analytical, and, and how he how, how he reads the game, and so it's just it's just so interesting hearing things from from that perspective. I've I've never actually met Andre myself. I've seen him a ton. I've I met Steffi a couple of times, um, but hopefully I'll meet him soon. Um,
1: yeah, I, I'd say it's not it's not far away. And t- tell me about those uh, Spartan workouts that you guys do. Is that part of the foundation?
0: Yeah, it's funny. It it all started during quarantine. Obviously, um, you know, it's been so tough for so many people, but one in, in, in May of 2020, myself and three other friends, we went out on a hike one day and we came across this area next to Red Rock where... There's this kind of like reservoir or it's kind of like an abandoned reservoir with there's a bunch of sand there's huge huge steps there's a bunch of boulders, rocks and things to climb and stuff and we we're kind of together and we're start we're doing push ups and we're doing squats and lunges, and we're trying to get fit you know during the quarantine. I think a lot of people are trying to get fit during the quarantine and we're keeping our distance and everything and basically we said to ourselves, this would be a cool place to get a group of people out and to and to you know get fit you know. And so we created, we came up with this um, we called it Sparta. And then we ended up creating an Instagram account called Sparta Workouts. And and we started um inviting all the alumni from the foundation and donors from the foundation, people who had supported us and 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 donated to us over the years. And we got them out and we started doing these crazy workouts. You know, it's starting off with a with a one and a half mile run, followed by um, a bunch of body weight exercises followed by a, um, a a race at the end and then ending with kind of yoga and meditation and that type of thing and it's been a real hit now we 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 didn't expect it we didn't plan it but um you know if if anyone's ever in vegas and fabio if you're ever in vegas you're more than welcome to come out and and uh and and it, it, it's it's really tough it's some lung busting stuff but it's it's fun it's a lot of fun
1: Looks, I'd need to train it before I went there. <laughs> I'd get injured looking at what you guys were working on. Oh, it was really good. For It looked really fun and exciting. And I think you've even a little franchise business there, if you could find similar places around the country. But no, it was really well executed. Thanks, it was a great job. Just have a couple more questions for you, James. One is, like, do you, do you ever see yourself the future... Come back into tennis, like let's say Irish Davis Cup captain or coaching on tour. These I know are two different roles completely there, but do, do, any interest in them long term?
0: It's it's really hard to say, Fabio. Um, my experience with making plans, it's like what Mike Tyson said: everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And my my experience with making plans is that they never come true. You know, so I I'm not a big planner. I'm I'm a I'm a you know I I don't know if i'll be involved in 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 tennis in irish tennis or in irish davis cup you know i kind of just follow what's right and and if if it if it it comes about and if it's right great um but only if it's right um so it's hard to say i mean i'm obviously i'm passionate to to be for yeah i'm young and i'm passionate to be from ireland and and i think you know we have a, a tremendous amount of of fantastic athletes in Ireland. I mean we see it in so many sports. We see it in 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 the GAA, we see it in 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 boxing, we see it in swimming and running and all these different sports and rugby and soccer. And uh, it's it, it is a shame that we haven't more professional tennis players from Ireland. So, you know, if I if I can help in any way, I'd be happy to, but at this stage kind of of my life, this is what I'm doing. And if if it opens up and if it's right as I said, you know, I, I'm definitely willing to to help and, and to help in any way that I can.
1: Nice, nice. And the question we ask a, a lot of our guests is, what advice do you have for young tennis players out there who want to be professional? What's the one most important advice that you wish you would have received as a 15, 16-year-old?
0: It's, it's it really is a long conversation, that. But if I had to, you know... Oh, there's so much. <laughs> Where do you start as a fifteen? It obviously depends. you know, I think I think it starts primarily with the individual. and I think you gotta be able to look at yourself first and ask yourself the question, like, is this really what I want to do? Am I willing to 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 dedicate my life to becoming a, a professional tennis player? because I think it's worth educating yourself on what it's like to be a pro. And it's worth educating yourself and 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 listening to these type of podcasts. You know, you're really doing a, a great thing here, Fabio, with these podcasts and asking these type of questions. It's something that I I didn't have the, the knowledge of when I was when I was 15 years old. But I think it, it starts primarily with the person. You know, how much desire is there? How much are they willing to work hard? Are they willing to you know um, you know sacrifice certain things? Are they willing to get to bed early when all their friends are out partying and doing that type of thing. But I think, you know, I think you want to surround yourself with the best people possible. You want to surround yourself with A players, people that have experience, people that know what they're talking about. You want to make sure that you're playing the biggest tournaments because, you know, I think you learn, at least for me, I I learned the most when I was competing. I learned the most when I was challenged. And I think when people are challenged and they really see the reality of things, that's when they can either, you know, when they can grow or or they won't grow. Um, but it's, uh, it really is a tough grind. I think, um, for me, one of the mistakes that I made, I was very naive going into being a professional tennis player. I thought it was, all I thought it was, was, was center court of Wimbledon and center court of, of all these big tournaments. And we all, I think from these conversations, with so many people, you realize that's not what it's about at all. Like there, there's so much more to it. You know, there's the physical side to the game. There's the mental side. There's the scheduling side. There's the financial side. There's um, knowing where to base out of. There's knowing how to hire people and and knowing when to get rid of someone and those type of things. You know, there really is um, a lot that goes into being a professional tennis player. And I think the best thing you can do is talk to people who have already experienced it and have already made a lot of mistakes, you know, because if you're just playing the guessing game or, or if you think that, you know, the way and you, you know, just because you know, the way that's, that's a big mistake, you know, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, there really is so much to it, but I think ultimately surrounding yourself with the right people who can help you playing the biggest tournaments and, you know, looking at yourself and and improving yourself.
1: Yeah, no, that's great advice. Uh, What about also people not like you surround yourself with the right people that are also not afraid to tell you as it is? Yes. Sometimes you need to be told you're not good enough or whatever, or you're whatever. You need to change things up. For sure. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Uh, So, James, thank you very much. I really enjoyed that. It was a good catch up. We hadn't spoken in a while. Uh, So, thanks very much for jumping jumping on the call and yeah that's it Uh, keep up the great work and we may be hearing more from you soon Uh, hopefully we'll have some news for the audience uh, soon but uh, thanks a lot
0: thank you Fabio for having me I appreciate what you're doing and uh, and hopefully we'll be on again at some stage take care of yourself mate
1: I hope you enjoyed that chat with James he's doing a great job with the Inspiring Children Foundation I wish him all the luck I'll be back next week and until then take care